I can't begin speaking without first praying, especially after that time of worship. So let's pray together. How trust, how sweet it is that we can trust in you, Jesus. How precious is the remedy by which you've brought us to the Father. How wonderful it is that you saw us dead in our trespasses and sins, and you did not leave us without a recourse or a way to come back to you. It's amazing this morning that we are gathered together with all sorts of different backgrounds, people of different ages and different perspectives, and each one of us have this one thing in common. If we're here this morning, we're looking to you. We're looking to Jesus, and we are a demonstration of the wisdom of God on display by the uniting of all things together into this one person, Jesus. And it is wonderful and mysterious and marvelous that we get to sing to you. When these mouths were once wholly given over to profaning you and cursing you, how marvelous it is to have children here this morning hearing these things. I pray for each of these children that are here in the service this morning and every adult and every soul, that we would behold Christ. We would savor Him, see Him, love Him, adore Him, and sing with renewed vigor to Him. In Jesus' name. I ask you to join me in Colossians chapter 1. No, my name is not Brandon, and I will not be going through the uh, book of Ephesians with you this morning. The last few weeks... We have been starting a journey through the book of Ephesians, discovering the mystery of the church revealed through the coming of Christ and through His building uh, and proclamation of the church. And the thing that's mysterious about the church is that the Scriptures are clear. Throughout the Scriptures, it is clear that there is a Savior. There was an anticipation. There was a longing for a Messiah to come. And yet, when He was there among the people who He went to, His own people, whom were, should have been those who received Him, they could not see Him. And our reading as a church, we have been reading through uh, the Gospels together. And recently we've been in the, the Gospel of Mark and Maybe you noticed this, but when I was reading through this passage, it just really struck a chord with me. In Mark 10.32, we see that Jesus is walking down the road, and His disciples are there behind Him. And it says, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. I think that's probably the only right response we should have when we see Christ, a mixture of awe and fear. Because the only other response is to have anger or confusion. And what we see in the response to Christ among those who loved Him is fear and astonishment. Back in Mark chapter 5, you probably recall that when the gathering demoniac was relieved of this uh, powerful demon, the people who saw that tortured man free and sitting in his right mind were not afraid of that man any longer, but were now exceedingly fearful of this man who had freed the demoniac. And just prior to that, Jesus was in the boat with His disciples passing over the sea. And these fishermen who were experienced with the storms that would come on the Sea of Galilee were crying out, Lord, save us. Lord, rescue us. 
And when Jesus stood and He spoke to the sea and He said, Hush, they were exceedingly afraid, not of the sea, not of the storm, but their fear was even greater because of the Savior who was in the ship with them. And they wondered and were astonished, how could it be that even the wind obeys Him? The ministry of Jesus is mysterious. It is marvelous. It is wonderful. And it is confusing. And it should cause us to rightly apprehend it again. We, we come to the Gospel sometimes and we don't come at it the right way. We just look back at what Christ has done and we don't have the right sympathy for what the disciples were experiencing when they looked at Christ and they didn't understand and so they were fearful. They were astonished. We look at the Pharisees, the Judaizers, the Romans who rejected Him. And we say, I wouldn't have done that. But we forget that it's only by the grace of God that our eyes are opened that we can see and behold the wonder of the Savior. And the very man who crucified Christ hours later would pierce Him and would know He is my Lord and my God. It wasn't the piercing that opened His eyes. It was the Savior who opened His eyes. And so what I want to do with you as we have been discovering the mystery of the church is to take a moment and look with you at really another mystery, and that's Christ. And this is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And I hope that you're already turned there because I don't think I mentioned it. But Colossians 1, 15 to 20, read this with me. He, that is Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Again, we have to pray so that we would understand this text. So join me again as we pray. Father, this is a powerful text. A text that we are meant to savor. A text that we are meant to read carefully. One that we are supposed to be slow in looking over. We could say this is true of all the Scripture, but we know specifically in this passage, there is much, much here for us to behold. So this morning, I pray that You would open our eyes. That You would give us fresh minds, fresh eyes. Lord, we don't... We can't do this. We can't do this in our flesh. It's impossible for us to see You. We need spiritual eyes to see and to savor Christ. And we pray, Lord that You would be opening eyes this morning and that for those who have become dull of heart, You would be refreshing us, sharpening us, so that we'd be able to hear anew and be in awe of our Savior. And it is in His name that I pray. Amen.
You know, one of the things that you probably notice as we read through this passage is that it's poetic. Some commentators think it may have been an early hymn of the church. It's certainly an intentionally rhythmic structure. As a matter of fact, if you were to take verses 15 to 17 and write them out on one side of a piece of paper and take verses 18 to 20 and write them out on the other side and draw a column in the middle, you would notice that there are repetition between the two columns. There is usage of the same words. And in fact, there are ideas that are unfolded in a similar sequence. And so what we see is that Paul is wanting the believers who he's writing to, to stop. To slow down. To think about who Christ is. Again, this is a church... You may not know this. This is a church, the Colossian church. That, this is a church that he had not personally planted. It was planted by a man named Epaphras. And so when he's writing to them, he's not doubting their salvation. He trusts that they've truly been saved, but he wants them to stop and savor our Savior. He wants them to think, and we know if you've ever studied this book, that he is dealing with a specific heresy that is trying to corrupt the church, and it's one that is a constant enemy of the gospel that Paul is refuting. But what Paul believes and what is true for all of us is that if we will truly apprehend the Savior Savior for who He is, what He has done, and what His intention is through His life, activity, and ultimate, our consummation to be with Him at the end of time, we won't be confused by those heresies that come along. We won't be taken captive when we look truly and behold Christ as He is. So I want you to notice for our outline this morning that Paul wants us to step back and to savor savor the supremacy of Christ. That is that Christ is the highest. He is the ultimate. He is the greatest being of all time. He, Paul, wants us to see that Jesus is preeminent first in creation And we'll see that in verses 15 and 17. And secondly, Jesus is preeminent or supreme or of first order of unlike any other kind. He is preeminent in redemption. And we see that in verses 18 to 20. So let's look first at this. Jesus is preeminent in creation. And the first thing that Paul wants us to marvel at is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I, I can never cease to be in, amazed at the Incarnation. As you read through your Scriptures, as you read through the Old Testament, again and again we see these theophanies, the angel of the Lord visiting men. We remember that when Abraham was with his wife Sarai, excuse me, when his name was still Abram, before his name was Abraham, his wife was still Sarai, not Sarah, the angel of the Lord who we know now as the pre-incarnate Christ spoke to him. We believe, many commentators believe, I myself believe, that Melchizedek, the one that Abram offered his sacrifice to, was probably the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord, when he came before uh, Joseph, or excuse me, Joshua, Joshua said, "Who, who are you for, us or them? And then the angel said, no, I'm for the Lord. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. And in the incarnation, what we see is the final theophany of Jesus Christ where He did something that we would never have anticipated. God Himself took on flesh. 
We see this in verse 15, that Jesus, when He took on flesh, He became the image of the invisible God. And unlike the Father in heaven who cannot be seen by sinful eyes, the Son, Jesus Christ, was the visible representation of God the Father. And He can be seen. He could be touched. And what's marvelous and terrifying is He could be rejected and was. Hebrews 1.3 describes it in, the same, in a similar way. He says, the author there says, He is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the Word of His power. This Jesus, this incarnation, this representative of God come from heaven to earth is fully God, fully man, and has all power and upholds all things. And yet it was His kindness that He availed Himself. We probably remember that on that day in which the disciples were with Christ and Jesus' raiment became white as light and they could hardly look upon Him, that that was just a inkling, just a, a part of Him revealing to them the fullness of His glory. But they were still able to see Him and speak to Him. So we know that was not him fully unveiled before them. What's tremendous about God coming back to earth is that when Jesus came in this way, what He was doing was seeking to reconcile us as we've been learning. He's been seeking to reconcile man back to God. As you recall, we've looked at this over the last few weeks. When Adam and Eve walked through the garden, God would come down and speak to them face to face. And there was no separation. There was freedom of conversation. They were naked and unashamed. However, once sin entered in, there was a great chasm between God and man. The sinners were cast out of the garden. For the sake of protecting them, He set His cherubim to prevent them from coming back in and eating of the tree of eternal life. See, God graciously did this. He let death enter in to kill them so that although sin, the thing that brought death, would cause them death, it would not be eternal separation. God allowed death to enter the world so that we could have life. That's hard to understand. It's confusing at times. And that's why it's so important when we go through a, a full unveiling of what the Gospel is, what it means, as we've been doing these last few weeks, we have to stop. We need to think. We need to wrestle with the Scriptures to understand that this has been planned out by God. When God spoke to Eve and to Adam, and He promised them that there would be a Savior to come through their line. They believed, they understood, and they were saved sufficiently through that faith. How great is sin? Moses, probably one of the most godly men, if not the most godly man to ever walk this earth next to Jesus Christ, was with the Lord on the mount. He looked to the Lord and he said, Lord, show me your glory. And the response is sobering, and it was quick. You cannot see my face lest you die. For no man can see the face of God and live. Even Moses, a man who was far more righteous than me, and I trust more righteous than any of us in this room, could not look upon the face of God and live. Sin has separated us from God. 
But when Jesus came to earth, he took on the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself and became like one in the likeness of man. John 1.14 says it this way, The Word became flesh and it dwelt, that means tabernacled among us. And we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Incarnation displays to us the greatness of God. Our God, the eternal God, was born in a stable, not at a distant, and He is not a distant or withdrawn God, but a humble God, a giving God, not a selfish or grabbing God. Our God is a purposeful, planning God, not a random or reactionary God. Our God is a God who is far above us, whose ways are not our ways, not a God we can put into a box to control. No, our God is a God who redeems us by His blood. He's not a God that leaves us in our sin. No, He is a God who is great indeed. This is the mystery. This is the wonder of the Incarnation. And when Jesus came to earth, He did so not as He should have, not as He could have, but as He will have. He will eventually come as a conquering King. No, He did not come as a conquering King when He came to earth and tabernacled among us. Instead, He came as a suffering servant. And for those who read the Scriptures, to this day, when Israel reads the Law, the Scripture tells us their eyes are blinded. And as a matter of fact, if you were to speak to rabbis who look and believe that the Scripture is true and they hold Isaiah 53 to be a valid passage of Scripture, do you know how they read Isaiah 53 and its description of the suffering servant? They, they apply it to themselves. They've missed the Messiah. They've missed the Savior. Jesus came. He was incarnated among us. Why? so that we could be reconciled to God. Again, we, we think, is it a mercy to let death enter? Yes. Because otherwise it would be eternal hell on earth, living in these bodies with no way to come back to God. No, Jesus did not leave us alone. God in His grand plan, as we see in this passage, as we've been seeing these last few weeks, intended to send Christ the first born of all creation. You know what's interesting about that word firstborn is that it's easy to misunderstand it. You may be aware of the Arian controversy. It took place about the 4th century AD and eventually led to the Nicene Creed. And in that in that controversy there was this argument that firstborn here indicated that Jesus was while greater than all the rest of us was begotten not made or sorry, was begotten and had been made. So he was God's son. He was the first man. But you know what's foolish about that argument? And, in, and by, by the way, it is a heresy that is still held this day by the Jehovah's Witnesses. What's foolish about that argument is that it doesn't take the Scripture as it is. Look again at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And all you have to do is keep reading to have the answer what firstborn means. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created 
through Him, and for Him. That's no man. No man creates. No man receives glory for that creation. But a God does, and Jesus is God. Isn't it interesting how many of our heresies, how many of our controversies, how many of our doctrinal squabbles are so easily mopped up if we would simply read the context of the Scriptures? Yeah, we need a systematic theology, but you know what? You just need to read the Bible. And a lot of those controversies are dealt with. Jesus, if He was merely a man that had been made, there is a better word in the Greek to describe Him. Rather than being firstborn, He could have just been described as first created. But what this word means is not first created, but preeminent, supreme, high, of first order, and sovereign. And we see that in this passage. Rather than being one who is the greatest among equals, among men, He is the first among equals in the Godhead and the Trinity. And we see His position. We see where He was. If you turn back to John, the Gospel of John, you're familiar with this language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's exactly what this hymn is singing and reminding us of. For by Him, that is Jesus Christ, all things were created. He was there at the before the beginning. That's even imaginable for us to wrap our minds around. There was Jesus with God. He was there. And so, we see that Jesus is the one from whom, or in whom, to whom, and for whom all things were made. And I want to look at that with you. In Him, we see that Jesus is the architect. It would be a very silly thing for one of us to go and try to build a building without having a set of plans out. I'm a landscape designer, and even for doing a landscape, it's important to have a plan. And if you don't have one, pretty soon you're going to find out you don't have enough plants or you may have too many. But it's even worse if you're trying to build a building. Imagine you were going to build a treehouse. It doesn't seem like that big of an operation. But even for a treehouse, you need to have a set of plans out. Otherwise, it's going to be catastrophic for your children. But see, what Jesus was doing with the Father is something far greater than even that. Far greater than building a building like this or a great building, a skyscraper, that men are capable of doing. Jesus, the architect, was planning before the beginning, to lay out this plan of salvation. And so before there was a beginning, He was looking as to how He was going to purpose in His divine will all things to come into being as He willed and had a response for each one. True or false, God can be a little sovereign. Jesus is either absolutely sovereign or He's not sovereign at all. And that's what this idea of being the preeminent firstborn in all creation indicates. So Jesus is not only that masterful architect, but He is involved. He's the master carpenter. Isn't it wonderful that as a man when He came to earth, that's the thing He chose to be? A carpenter? Why? 
Well, because as a master architect and a master builder, he had seen to it that each one of us would be who we are, have our being, be where we are, being even this building this morning. Why? So that through Him, that is through Jesus Christ, to Him all glory would be received. This is the purpose of Christ in creation. Notice the next set of verses that Jesus is not only preeminent over creation, but He is also preeminent over redemption. Look at verse 18. He is also head of the body of the church. You know, this is the mystery that we've been discussing these last few weeks. As we look through the Scriptures, it's possible to find passages of Scripture that deal with a suffering servant, a messianic king, a kingdom of God to be restored. But there's not much mention of church. It wasn't until the resurrection and really after Jesus commissioned His disciples, it wasn't until Pentecost that the church was inaugurated. The, the fact that Jesus spoke about the church while He was on earth went right over their heads like much of the other things He spoke to them, including that He would be betrayed, that He would be forsaken, that even some of His own disciples would abandon Him. In fact, all of them would. It went right over their head. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. What does that mean? Well, we all have heads on our bodies. And we know that our bodies, they have parts. What gives the headship or the leadership or the guidance for the whole body? The head. So what we see is that not only is Christ intimately acquainted with the construction of all, t- all things through time, but He's also intimately involved in the church by seeing and overseeing its construction. Jesus has promised to build His church and it will not fail. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is just as involved in His creation as He is in redemption, as He is in using the church to bring about His purposes and His will. When Jesus inaugurated the church at His resurrection, He proclaimed the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Noahic covenant, every one of the covenants that He had made through time, all the promises that He had made through the law to the patriarchs, all of them are fulfilled in the coming of the church. Because it is that Abrahamic covenant in specific that we see all the nations blessed through Abram. That was the call. That was the blessing. That was the motivation. That was the purpose of the life of Abram. To bring glory to God by his, his Abraham's faithfulness to God so that all the nations would be blessed and that all men who have a faith like His would be called children of Abraham. And so it's for this reason that Paul goes on in Colossians 1 to say this in verse 28. Just turn there. We proclaim Him, that's Jesus, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present some men Is that what it says? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is the desire of the Father. This is the heart of God. He does not desire or long to see people tormented. 
this is the wonderful thing about the wisdom of God as we begin to unfold it from the Scripture as it's clearly laid out before us. Look at verse 19-20. to For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. On the day that Adam and Eve sinned, God was not surprised. Anyone that would say that has a small mind about God and does not understand the Scripture or its power. God was in no way surprised by their sin. He was prepared for it. The manifold wisdom of God on display is this, put simply. God has taken that one tool, that one implement, which was destined to kill us and separate us from Him, sin, and has chosen to use it to be the greatest instrument by which He reveals the depth of His love, the height of His grace, and the power of His wisdom. That's why Romans 3 can say this in verse 25-26. to This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is why God could look past sin because He knew it would be dealt with in Christ. Jesus, the Master Architect, worked out every detail from the beginning to the consummation of the age. When we see Him again face to face, He did all of this so we would be amazed at His wisdom. Even the angels, we read of them in Hebrews, they long to see our worship services. And why is that? It's certainly not because we're more holy than the angels because they're without sin. It's simply for this reason. They are in awe of God. That He is making us His enemies like Jesus. And I don't mean a little like Jesus. His exact likeness. That is our journey as a church. That is the marvelous unfolding mystery of God and His wisdom on display through the church. And this is how God has chosen to transform the world. That's why as a church, we don't simply just come in every week and hear good sermons. We go out. We proclaim Him, admonishing everyone so that every man may be complete and not miss the Gospel. The fact that you have blood coursing through your veins and you will die one day has two things happening at once. One is it's fearful if you're without Christ, but it's joyful if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, proclaim Him because there is a world around us that is full of sorrow and will experience eternal hell. And it's already in hell right now. For the Christian, this is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. For the believer, or the unbeliever, excuse me, this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. We need to preach Christ. Him crucified. Through the blood of His Christ, He has ransomed sinners. But that doesn't mean that you're just saved because Jesus died on the cross. You have to believe on Him. 
You have to confess your sins. As we read this morning in Psalm 103, He chooses to forget. He He removes our sin from His memory. But it's only possible if we trust on His sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice. Look again at verse 18. Jesus, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Think about that. He's the, the firstborn from the dead. Just as He was preeminent in creation, Jesus is first by being raised from the dead. I think this is something we can look past kind of quickly. Did you know that Jesus is the only person right now who has a resurrected body? And for us, we we long to have a resurrected body. But for those who are now asleep, as the Scripture describes it, they are longing and waiting for that day when they will be joined with Christ receiving that resurrection body. Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be raised according to uh, 1 Corinthians 15.20. Jesus has reconciled all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And so when all those who are asleep, mind you, they are in the presence of the Lord, but when all those who are asleep are raised, they will receive their imperishable resurrection bodies and will join in the exaltation, saying together with one another, O death, where is your sting? O the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Until that point, we look to Christ, our Savior, who has taken with Him a trophy to heaven. Do you know what that trophy is? His resurrected body. And He longs for and anticipates getting the greatest prize. And you know what that is? His bride, the church, beautiful and perfect, presented to Him. This is that from Him, through Him, and to Him, Scripture tells us about. That's not the only thing. Did you know that the earth needs reconciliation as well? We read it in Romans 8 that the, the earth, and as a matter of fact, longs for the consummation of the age to see the sons of God come to Christ. And why is that? Because it longs for its emulation. It means it longs for its own destruction. As a matter of fact, I could say that the creation has a better eschatology that means a longing for the coming of Christ than most of us do. The creation groans in anticipation, longing for the coming of Christ. You see this in verse 20. Jesus will reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth, but notice where else? In heaven. We as men need reconciliation. The earth needs reconciliation, but sin is so sinful that it is even in heaven. You've probably read with confusion the book of Job when you see Satan coming and walking around heaven and talking to God. How is that possible? Well, sin is so sinful that it has tainted not only us, but it, it has even changed the nature of heaven such that God will have to destroy it. When we read verse 17 earlier, you may have noticed that it says, Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The thing that we should see here is that Jesus is literally the glue 
that holds all things together. What Paul does in this passage is not only let us know that Jesus created all things, but He sustains all things. The fact that you have your being today is the grace of God. We, we speak of how the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and that is the, the common grace of God. But the fact that you have your being is the grace of God. The fact that you can drive down the road, take a sharp left turn, and not immediately float into the air into uh, outer space because gravity ceased to be gravity is the, gra- is the grace of God. And at an atomic level, we have no right to exist. And scientists who study the atom don't understand how it is that we continue to exist. There's all they know, some sort of glue that holds all things together. John MacArthur says it this way, looking at a professor named George Gamlow, who is a professor of physics, he says this, every object is a potential nuclear explosion. It's incredible, isn't it? What holds it all together? We know who. Scientists call it a nuclear glue. They even came up with a word for it. It's interesting. It's called the Colossus. John MacArthur notes, it's not Colossus. It's Colossians 1.17. In 2 Peter 3.10, Peter describes that day in which all things will end. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. You see, at the time and at that exact moment when the restraining grace of Christ is removed, that nuclear glue will be gone and everything in earth will be dissolved immediately. Marvelously, mysteriously, we'll still be part of the new heavens without any taint in the new earth. Sin has altered our relationship with God. Its polluting effect has reached as high as heaven. We have to be in awe of that. You know, again, I'm I'm a landscaper. I have to deal with leaves falling. Leaves didn't used to fall. It's unnatural. Things didn't used to have to die. We didn't used to have to eat meat. Things have been altered dramatically because of the fall. When Jesus came and He dwelt among men, even though He had consistently revealed His plan for reconciliation throughout the Scriptures, it was still a mystery and it confounded many. We, we shouldn't be surprised at this because, you see, He came to His own, according to John. Jesus came to His own and they did not receive Him. His, his own people looked at Him and they couldn't recognize Him. Not just that, His mother, His brothers, they didn't even understand who He was. They, they thought He was going crazy. They were trying to save Him from Himself. Even His own disciples, His closest friends, didn't know who He was. Memorably, Philip spoke to Jesus prior to the night in which He was to be betrayed. Philip said to, the Lord, said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am, the fa- that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? 
the response that we should have for truly following Christ is a mixture of astonishment and fear. That's the response that John had. If you turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. When John saw Jesus again, he saw the full effulgence of his glory. And starting in verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest. It was a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. When it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Amen.